Generative AI takes the center stage, but is your enterprise still watching from the sidelines? Come on in, let's fix that. This is Not Another Bot, the Generative AI Show, where we unpack and help you understand the rapidly evolving space of conversational experiences and the technology behind it all. Here is your host, TJ. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Not Another Bot, the Generative AI Show. I'm your host, TJ. Joining me today is Justin, a senior AI machine learning technical specialist in product management at Siemens. Justin looks into Siemens' portfolio of simulation software. He earned his bachelor's, master's, and PhD in mechanical engineering at the University of Central Florida in thermal fluids. Justin worked at Siemens Energy Turbo Machinery Lab characterizing heat transfer, fluid mechanics, and turbulence in gas turbine secondary flow systems. His master's and doctoral research was on film cooling flow fields, predicting turbulence and thermal fields with advanced turbulence modeling and machine learning approaches. This is excellent. <laughs> welcome, Justin. That is a great introduction for sure. I'm super intrigued to learn more for sure. But welcome to the show. I'm pleased to be here. I can't wait to get into the content here and talk about AI. I'm thankful to say that that's my day job now for several years. So it's always a pleasure. Well, Intrigued by experiences, the first thing I really wish to know more about is if you could talk to me about how you have used artificial intelligence in your work to increase efficiency and the experience of the end user, you know, over a period of time would be great to learn. And any experiences around like adoption of AI would be an addition to it. So would love to hear your thoughts on that. Absolutely. So it's like any other templated question on how can AI affect this industry or what impact is it having? It's multifaceted. There's a lot of ways that AI is impacting our industry of computer-aided engineering, engineering simulation, whatever you want to call it. But there are certain themes that I think are paramount and pretty much obvious in a lot of discussions. So you'd start with saying faster throughput, faster solutions, faster time to answer, whatever you want to call that one. So really machine learning especially can help this digital work that people are doing to design their equipment and hardware be expedited and get answers in a fraction of the time, which is one of the biggest ones I would say that's making an impact. So that's the big one. The second one's probably really relatable. It's related to user experiences. So if you're old enough, then you remember like Clippy from Microsoft Word. So it's like an AI charged Clippy, right? In a proverbial or just funny sense. But then in more serious examples, right? Like ChatGPT and these sort of developments are having really large impacts on people's productivity at work. And so it really falls into this category of like user enhanced experiences. So less click miles, you know, having an assistant that's like an expert that could sit with, say, a junior to help them through stuff that they would learn over years of work is another one. And then I would say the synergy, I guess you can call it like a digital twin concept, really. AI is a big enabler for a lot of use cases of digital twins. And to be really inclusive with that language, we're talking about scenarios where you have a lot of different types of data. And we want to incorporate it and fold it into a consolidated model, which could be machine learning based, to say that whatever is happening in real life, we are making a digital mirror representation or twin of that in our computer that we're looking at and modeling. And yeah, machine learning can help with that a lot in some use cases. So those are three of, say, five that I would say are important. Awesome. And I think my interaction with simulation has been when my previous jobs at companies like Microsoft or so with like AirSim and others have been amazing to see how, you know, the canvas could be used for like, you know, just creating more of an environment with synthetic data and then using reinforcement learning consistently. So it's just great to hear about that thought for sure. Now that 
you have been with Siemens for over four years now, and I would love to know what's been sort of your and and the company's focus during this time. How has your work evolved over the last four years, and what are you really focusing on? Let's say in the first half of twenty twenty three for now. Okay, cool. I'll answer that with a twofold sort of approach. First is past until now, and then present focus. So, what I think I've been privileged to see in terms of the trajectory is that, you know, in 2017, I had my first professional AI experience. In that case, it was combining simulation and healthcare diagnostic sort of approaches with AI to where we patented something for detecting lung disease. And at the time, I saw in automotive, to machinery, kind of this broad area of mechanical and aerospace disciplines, theoretical proposals on the academic side of what machine learning can do and what this, this could afford society, right? And then I started seeing a bit of maturation and cross-pollination from all the huge advancements in machine learning from mainstream tech companies and whatnot, where now the cross-pollination was having more uptick. So rather than academic proposals and proof of concepts and theoretical type problems or very canonical, simple problems, we started to see, you know, those top tier technology and research groups start to make consulting proposals where they could do these projects. But it was very much, you know, you had to have high know-how and competency to be able to do it and provide it and buy those services. And then now, in present times, we're seeing a lot of that percolate into commercial products that non-experts can use. And so we've seen it go from theoretical to only experts can wield the power in the industries to now a lot of things are widely available that you may not even have to be STEM-oriented or an engineer to be able to just frankly use these capabilities. Maybe you don't know what you're doing, but like it's available to you. Much in the sense that now large language models and everything else is out there and any kind of app store and things like that, it's, it's really everywhere. So I would say the field of engineering and simulation and HPC and this sort of area is no different. And it's, that's where we're at now in 2023 is a lot has been vetted, a lot has been proven, a lot has been gone from interest areas to requested areas to buy certain services and products. And we're seeing this adoption. And it's really exciting to be at the forefront of it and take advantage of Staying on the shoulders of giants, I think, is a relevant term on taking advantage of these advancements. Absolutely. Well, now that we talked a bit about what your focus area has been and where you're heading with this, I'm also intrigued by your introduction to simulation, per se, right? Or the career you chose. Talk to me more about your the whole engineering simulation and how you got introduced to it. What really intrigued you to be here and make it a career? I definitely see you're very passionate about the subject. You've been doing this, you know, day in, day out. So would love to learn more before we get into the rest of the questions for sure. Cool. Happy to share. So it's kind of a funny story. I started out as an experimentalist and really I focused on, I guess you could say like traditional aerodynamics and heat transfer in the labs, building experimental test facilities, doing correlation and measurements for different energy companies or aerospace companies. And then at some point, I guess I got tired of building wind tunnels and rigs and things like that because you know you spend months to build something and then you take the data and then sometimes you could just pivot to build something else and i like working with my hands but i really liked the science side so then i guess for some reason it was a natural transition to start doing more and more simulation so you could get these models faster get these results faster and yeah i was full tilt into mechanical and aerospace type simulation a lot of computational fluid dynamics and things of that nature and like I said, I took this internship with a healthcare engineering 
portion of Siemens in their Princeton like location and office. Sort of, they have this amazing group of people that were every single day replacing simulation for certain healthcare problems with AI. And something about seeing everyone around me do that for weeks eventually made a click. Like, okay, this is not a. I don't even know if there was much hype at the time in 2017 on this. I just at that time it clicked and said, when I come back to finish my dissertation. I'm going to incorporate machine learning, and that's the track I'm going to be on for the foreseeable future. And six years later, that's really been my mandate. So I did it in my dissertation in a sense that would be balanced with the themes and study objective that I already posed. You name it, pet projects, Kaggle competitions, Coursera classes, reading papers, just the traditional experience to throw myself at it. And then things really started to get more and more formal. So at work, people started becoming interested in the business and market for incorporating AI into computer-aided engineering and simulation. And I had a lot of momentum on this. So then I just voluntarily with pet projects and after hours sort of things, just working with the different development teams saying, I think I can chip in and help on this. And yeah, I mean, you really manifest that after thousands of hours. And then I'm really thankful to say that for several years now, I've had this AI dedicated role as a tech specialist in our product management team. And it's really fun because you get to be involved in strategy setting and you get to work with development teams and research teams and a fit like partners and academic groups that are way smarter than I am. And it's just so great to be at the forefront and have this great ecosystem. So yeah, I mean, everyone has bad days, but I don't have that many and I love my job. So that's sort of been the arc. That's awesome story. I mean, given my experiences with educating engineers to kind of adopt machine learning and AI in, in, in my previous roles in other companies, that's not been the easiest path because, you know, we create a lot of, you know, different courses across, you know, different providers and, and even within the company. But it was not a not an easy journey. But we really took that journey. We created a lot of options and segues and different, you know, sort of devices for them to learn, you know, hands-on. So I think that kind of brings me to the next question that given you have been an engineer and certainly you have the background, though you do learn machine learning modeling and everything else, but then how difficult has it been to incorporate machine learning models or operationalize them into your software application stack? And second, how steep that learning sort of curve was? Because you have been focused on engineering for so long that how much of a learning it required for you to incorporate machine learning and AI into your engineering discipline? It's a great question, and I can provide some general answer and some anecdotal, but of course, every scenario is different. So I always cite this experience. So shout out to Sai, my favorite mentor of all time. So essentially, when I was starting this out and realizing like, oh, wow, this is going to take a lot of things to learn. How do I pick up this you know, knowledge over time and make this my career area? I think my mentor at the time was the smartest person I think I've ever met. He did his PhD at Johns Hopkins in simulation of geological flows. And he said to me, look, we're mechanical engineers. We've not taken a single formal programming class. So there's going to be challenges here, right? But school is really to set you up, right? And a lot of people joke that when you finish your dissertation, then your path begins, right? It's not the end, it's the start. So there are certainly things, but I think it really helps to be specific, right? So it's easy to get overwhelmed. Focus on specific areas that you're interested in. You know, I choose to try to go one mile deep, one inch wide, not the other way around. There's nothing wrong with doing either, but that's my preference. So, you know, it's okay that sometimes I may tune into like Tesla battery day and learn about their computer vision algorithms and get lost after two minutes. Like, it's okay. It's a completely separate field. 
you know, you can focus on one specific thing and read scientific literature to snowball your knowledge and take your time with that. And I think another thing about being specific that's important is also realizing that there's a lot of applications of how you could work in the machine learning industry. So you could work in your current field and apply machine learning into that. You could completely forsake your field and just jump into something completely separate that's machine learning oriented. So I think that's a choice that can help you decide how you want to become more and more familiar and versed in machine learning. And then I think also, you know, don't try and tackle everything at once in the computer science side if you're coming from mechanical engineering. Like I know for myself, I've had to to take classes and learn over time on the architecture and computer system design side of things, right? That's not machine learning, but it's certainly not mechanical engineering. So it's just something that, you know, in blocks, I decided, okay, this block of time for this season, like I'm going to take the class on this, learn by doing, get involved on those projects at work, and then I'll have at least some minimum understanding on this topic that I want, right? But it's very easy to like jump in, see an MLOps sort of textbook, and then get lost on every facet of the computer architecture and, and side of things, right? So I think it's good, you know, if you want to pick one, like maybe a data scientist, right? You're more focused on the models, the pipeline, the statistical like implications of what you're doing. That may be more bite-sized than, say, jumping into something with more pieces that you're not familiar with. And then the last piece I'll say that I always champion as like something I love is uh, Google Collab and or Kaggle, right? Then you don't have to have a GPU, a setup. You don't have to take a week to install all the GPU libraries and acceleration calculate like, like CUDA and things like TensorFlow. I mean, you can just literally in 30 seconds start coding. And that really helps when you're trying to do things on the side to learn. It's just to focus on that rather than distractions of like, why isn't this working? You know, why can't I open this library, et cetera? Because those things add up in your spare time. And, you know, I mentioned Kaggle. I think that's great because there's so many learning resources out there. But I think it's something novel to just download data and break it and then do it again and again and again. So I'd say, you know, take the course that you like, be specific on what you read for the interest area that you have, and then also, you know, learn by doing with data sets and competitions and discussion boards on Kaggle. I think that's a great way to learn in a threefold way. That's probably the best suggestion, you know, people who would be listening to this podcast. I think this is one of the best suggestions you could hear what just Justin said. You know, I could vouch for it because we were trying to educate so many engineers to become ML engineers. I think, you know, Kaggle, those competitions which we were hosting and the sort of courses you talked about and then where to focus, I think that's so critical to learn, you know, through a learning curve and a pattern. Thank you so much for sharing that for sure. It's just amazing. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, awesome. There's one of some other questions were specific to more of where your experiences lies. And certainly we're going to go more towards generative AI and large language models in a few minutes. But I think just to set the you know base further on the simulation and testing where do you really think the balance lies between AI and simulation and AI and test in your work? And is one going to provide better returns purely from an investment perspective? Good question. I'd love to be polarized and say super strong answer that it's blank and not the other. But I think that the trend is really causing them to become equal. So I would say at present, there's probably a higher return on investment to replace test with AI versus simulation with AI. And it's even then not clearly fairly stated because you're not replacing, you're more or less integrating it to take advantage and speed up and have these conveniences as far as less time, more safety and quality assurance and things like that. And I think that comes down to the simple matter of testing is harder to get. And when I say testing, I guess I should clarify, you know, let's say I produce aircraft engines, right? It's a lot cheaper and more feasible for me to simulate behavior 
under different conditions on how the engine would perform versus to mount one up, find a facility that can have that much flow rate, probably not possible. So I'd have to scale it down, which I'm already then making different assumptions and then take physical measurements, right? Like temperature, velocity, pressure, etc. So you can see that scale wise to test thousands of configurations, you have to manufacture all these pieces and get all this testing time. It's, it's already, you're limited, right? So there's a, an inherently high value in getting more information from that data that you're collecting in test and leveraging AI to amplify that and get more understanding out of it. So that's kind of what my answer would be today. But for those that are interested in companies like NASA and the simulation and methods there that they really focus on, there's this seminal sort of charter paper called, I think it's NASA's 2030 vision, something like this. It's really close. It might be one word different. Essentially, they published a few years ago and they said, look, if we want to accomplish all of these really huge innovations for what we can do numerically, these are the steps. These are the phase gates for how we stay on time. And it's a multifaceted sort of approach on a bunch of stuff for not just calculation, but also hardware and also the simulation techniques. And essentially what you see is engineers want more and more and more fidelity, larger models, things like that, right? So you can also you know, counter argue against the test and say, well, for all of that to happen, right? We're going to hit computational limits. People are going to get tired of spending thousands and thousands on their compute resources because no matter how fast their models become, they make them larger and thus slow them down, right? So it's really like both are ripe for introducing AI and saving a lot of time and resource. But if I'm forced to pick, I'd say test. Sweet. Makes total sense. Cool. Now let's go further down into some of the engineering simulation software that you have been working on and where do you see the applications or main applications of it? So we'd love to know, you know, precisely where your focus areas for right now, what you're doing, it seems. Cool. Well, precise and the rest of the question are probably antonyms because I work in the subsegment of Siemens that's called SimCenter, which means it's a portfolio of simulation and test products. And I can confidently say that it's multi-physics in the sense that acoustics, thermal, mechanical, fluid simulation, I mean, every kind. And we really pride ourselves in being approachable and usable and applicable to almost every industry. Pharmaceuticals, automotive, aerospace, chemical process, thermal machinery, defense, I mean, literally dozens of industries that we have like verticals for. So it's really, really broad. But, you know, to be a bit specific, because I really like to try to be specific, so we can get something out of what I'm saying you know, look at your car, look at the plane that you may fly in next, look at your electronics and the cooling and things like that. The majority of that will be designed in terms of the hours spent to engineer from a simulation, right? And there's a bunch of things to consider. And what we really try to do is to provide things to make sure that any sort of fluid mechanics, any sort of heat transfer, any sort of mechanical stress and wear and tear and fatigue, lifing that could cause the part to break over time. Really in all of these capacities, we try to produce software that can design. And of course we have application areas that are heavier focus and things like that, like electrification and batteries and flight certification and aerodynamics and things like that. So there's really quite a large number, but you know, if it helps, my background is in computational fluid dynamics primarily. So I looked at things like, you know, aerodynamic performance implications on if that makes things thermally safe, you know, is my engine going to overheat? Is my car going to be comfortable to ride in as well as have good drag and fuel economy and stuff like that? So it's hard to be precise, but that is really the best answer I can give. I will still take that. 
it's pretty well explained still, I guess. Well, thanks for sharing that insight. Well, I think one of the key things, well, as we have been reading more about, and also certainly from I'm following you and just learning from you for some time, but I had this, you know, sort of query in mind. What can you tell us about the whole accelerator portfolio of software? There was some news around, you know, Stone Ridge signing up for it. And how will it help organizations like that, you know, especially with the safety and cybersecurity requirements? Cool. So I'll start out by saying Siemens has, at least when I checked a couple of years ago, 500,000 plus employees. So you can imagine that things like cybersecurity and engineering simulation are a bit detangled, right? So I'm not a cybersecurity expert, but I'll start out by saying that it makes sense that the more we connect everything in terms of our real data and analytics, our design data from our customers' design components, the way that we want customers to more fluidly interact with different types of data they have and different software, right? We're making things more and more connected, which puts us more and more at a threat for cybersecurity attacks, right? So it's really core tenant of Accelerator, which I'll talk in a second, to take our, I think it's 1,300 cybersecurity experts in our company and really make sure that the software we provide, including Accelerator, is not vulnerable to these attacks, And, you know, Siemens is a big company. So if you think about basically the worst cases where cyber attacks would have an impact, Siemens produces products and apps in that space. And we do that because we have sufficient and trustworthy cybersecurity. So things like healthcare equipment, right? You would not want anything tampered with on that end. Or uh, production facilities for industrial facilities, right? You don't want things to be sabotaged in that case, right? And as a final example, public transport. If you fly through a lot of European countries, you'll notice like public transport by Siemens, right? So, you know, we have this really big established set of infrastructure and assets that like cannot be tampered with cybersecurity wise. And I think our company has done a good job at translating that into the other software. But at any rate, okay, let's talk about what Accelerator is. So in essence, we have a ton of apps and software that we produce. And we see that the trend of how people are using software means that it needs to be more interconnected to one another, more open to non-Siemens products and other Siemens products. And it needs to be out there in a marketplace of sorts as uh, web applications so that people are not constrained to using the software on their actual desktop. And then as it migrates to other forms like HPC centers or on their cloud on-premise or on our clouds that we provide, right? We see more and more that this is a need. So strictly speaking, Accelerator is a commitment to transform the way that all of our software is produced and given and and used by our customers into this more central way. And as you mentioned, cybersecurity is a key important thing. So we make sure that it's safe. And then we also vet and authorize non-Siemens software to be used there. So the goal is to make it really, really open. And I think Stone Ridge is a company that does like industrial agriculture equipment and automotive and electronics and stuff like that. So we can say like attractors or is one example. So in that case, I'll just use it as a case study. So really the key is we want them to have all the information imaginable for their products whenever they want it, including at the very, very beginning. So information like what happens if I manufacture with this material, what happens after it's designed, fabricated and used for thousands of hours, right? We want to take that IOT or analytics-based information And we want to provide it to them all the way at the start. That way they can make these decisions consciously as to what they're going to design and how they're going to design it. And they know the implications years down the road, right? 
So that's kind of this shift left strategy, which means provide information earlier on. And, you know, machine learning is a great part of that, right? Transfer learning, learning from historical data. A lot of use cases require machine learning to see all the missing pieces. Back in 2017, for example, at that research group, one of the projects at the time was for a company that's producing airplanes. They want to make machine learning models that can understand things so granular, such as if I choose this manufacturing method or this manufacturing method for this one set of components of thousands of other components, how will that affect how quickly I can deliver the final product? Because it takes like three to five years to deliver some of these major turbo machinery engines and things. So it's a really long process with thousands of steps. And you know, machine learning can help sort of provide this inference and this confidence interval of, you know, maybe you should go with this approach because then you're this much percent more confident to deliver on time, which is like one of the most important things, right? Safety, delivery, and performance. So I, I don't know if this is talking too much or you want to weigh in and ask certain questions and kind of back and forth, but that's the vision of Accelerator. And I think there's a lot more layers to it, but that's one at least first thing I can say. Hey listeners, we have to hit the pause button here. That was such a great conversation. So good, the guys just wanted to keep going. Feel free to push play on the second part and pour yourself another cup of coffee. We'll be right back.